your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. Now, I'm about to chat to a man who has very strong Limerick roots and people may be aware of that. They mightn't be aware of that. We'll certainly talk to him about it. But he became extremely well known, especially in recent years during the COVID pandemic, the former chief medical officer, Dr. Tony Holohan. And he has written a memoir, a book, We Need to Talk, Dr. Tony Holohan. And you're very welcome to the studio. Good morning. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. What was it like to be suddenly famous? Well, it was strange in a way, uh, but we were doing our jobs and we had to focus on doing our jobs and to just maintain, if you like, um, a focus on that uh, all the way through. Um, It became a consequence, if you like, of the fact that ultimately the means that we had of helping to control transmission of the disease was to engage with the public, to engage with the public, to explain how transmission happens and what they can do in their own lives to limit the risk of them picking up the infection and so on. The need to do that brought us into a level of daily contact that I I don't think anyone of us could have necessarily foreseen that just how intense that would be, how long it would go on. So in a sense, nothing prepares you for it. But we were trained to do the kinds of jobs we were doing, perhaps not at the scale, as I say, uh, that they turned out to be necessary. Uh, So in that sense, we just, you know, we just kept the head down and did the job to the best of our ability. But just from a human perspective, you and Ronan and others... Philip and Killian and, yeah. yeah, They became incredibly well-known in Mm. a way that you could never have anticipated. No, we couldn't have anticipated that. I mean, the job that I did did bring me into contact with the media from time to time. But for the most part, I wouldn't have had a lot of engagement to the media so that I wouldn't have been well-known outside of the the health sector. Um, And... But people like me in every country around the world, right across Europe, right across the world, found themselves pretty suddenly thrust into that kind of uh, front-facing engagement with the media and with the public in each of their individual countries Mm. and everything that came with that. And how did you manage having to maintain a professional face, of course, and a calming presence, because that was part of it with everything that was going on, and dealing with the natural human emotions and some of the things that you would have seen and heard said about you, for example? Uh, we Well, first of all, as I said, we tried to stay connected to the job we were doing and continue to focus on doing that as well as we could. We tried to then ensure that we built resilience into our own team. The team expanded and grew over time so that we could find ourselves in a situation where some people could get a little bit of time off uh, over the course because it was a very long and intense period of time. And I would have stressed behind the scenes the importance for people of taking breaks and finding things in their own daily lives that would help them to de-stress. And for myself, that was about music. It was about sport, when there was sport to engage with. And it was about uh, a walk in the park. I have a local, a lovely local park where I live in Dublin and I used to walk there every morning. So hail, hail rain or, or snow in the darkness, I'd walk around. And that was a good way for me listening to music of just kind of finding 20 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes over the course of the day to just recalibrate. Now, in the court system, they call it the fade factor. So why did you write this book now and not allow that fade factor to give you a chance maybe to go back into obscurity to some degree? Well, the writing of the book and the timing was much more to do with my wife than it was to do with myself in a way. Obviously, it's my story. But Emer was really keen that her story would be told and there are a few reasons behind that. Uh, you may be aware, and I write about this in the book, that she did unfortunately experience a delay in the diagnosis she ultimately received in September of 2012. It was maybe an understandable delay. This wasn't a common cancer, especially multiple myeloma was the name of the type of cancer that she has. As I say, it's not that common. 
uh, and it particularly isn't common for people under the age of 50. So we didn't suspect something like that and she presented on a couple of occasions to hospitals uh, with concerning symptoms. I actually wrote referral letters myself and raised alarms and I look back at some of those letters now. I was really raising the alarm and we were concerned about them. But there was a delay in that diagnosis and I, I know that it simply wouldn't have avoided ultimately Emer's death. This was a terminal disease, unfortunately. But it did mean that the course of her illness was much, much more severe in terms of pain. She presented much later, so there was a lot of bony disease when she presented and that caused very substantial pain and it caused a lot of upset to her. She wanted her story to be told, to try to raise awareness for people of the importance of not necessarily questioning everything a doctor will say to you, but having a sort of a healthy engagement and sort of asking questions and the importance of that. And, and I guess we have to live and I have to live with the fact that, you know, perhaps we took too much reassurance from some of those engagements we had with the health services when we were really concerned about the kinds of symptoms that she was having over the course of the spring and particularly summer of, of 2012. There were other reasons, of course, that she wrote, uh, that she wanted her story to be told. We had a significant engagement with the, with the medical teams much later in the course of Emer's illness in late 2020. It was clear that her radiotherapy and chemotherapy were not having the kind of effect that, that, that we would have liked. And she was getting more and more side effects and there was a question about whether this treatment was really offering her any benefit. And as a consequence of us having, I suppose, the knowledge of the importance of doing it, but having the courage to have the conversation with the medical teams and initiate that, Emer stepped back from treatment. And actually, paradoxically, we had a she, she got better because she was she was free of the side effects of a lot of those treatments for a couple of months, uh, and that meant that we got uh, a family Christmas where she was actually as well as she'd been in twelve or eighteen months, and that was maybe you know in the sort of six eight weeks before she died. So the importance of that early conversation with medical teams was another thing that she wanted to highlight. And the last thing that I'll mention is that the Think Ahead materials, and people will be familiar with the Hospice Foundation, I know I'm a member of the board, they produce wonderful materials that help people to complete the, the preparatory, to have those conversations in the families. Not, not, not when you end up, for example, in an intensive care unit or where there's somebody who's had a very severe illness, but well in advance, at our age, if you like, Joe, where we have those conversations, we look down the line to say, what if, what if I found myself in a situation whereby I had a terminal diagnosis, I wasn't able to communicate what my desires are about where I'd like to be buried, about what I'd like to wear when I was laid out. These, these, these are very basic and practical things that cause difficulty for families. The Think Ahead materials available through the Hospice Foundation yes. website really helped us. And, and we have talked about those, you'll be glad to know, because of Milford Hospice, obviously. Indeed, a wonderful place. Yeah, we're talking to Dr Tony Holohan this morning. Now, there are different types of doctors. So sure. you are a public health Correct. doctor. Um, do you think that some of what went on in terms of communicating during the pandemic was that it was difficult for people to understand the difference, i.e. what you were doing in public health versus the relationship that an individual would have with their GP or their consultant. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and, and public health can be a difficult concept to grasp. What a public health doctor focuses on is the whole population as opposed to individuals. As a doctor, you're trained to deal with, if you like, the patient in front of you. So I trained as a GP initially before I went back to, and I trained here in the Midwest in, in, in the Limerick uh, training scheme, before I went back to college to do a master's in public health and train ultimately to become a public health doctor. Uh, and so the focus of the two is different. But I thought, I found that my training and my background in general practice was enormously helpful to me. So we did depend a lot on frontline GPs, particularly on people in hospitals like intensive care units, uh, specialists, 
um, uh, microbiologists, infection control doctors to manage a lot of the, if you like, the clinical presentation for the people who got, who got illness and presented to the health services. But so just to be clear about on, this then, you, you weren't looking after me as an individual. Uh, correct. You were looking after the community. The, the, the totality. COVID. Yeah, the, the totality. Yeah, and, exactly. Because and, and it, it, it struck me a few times in conversations that that was something that might have been a bit of a missing link. Yeah, and that like people do, and, and even in the medical profession, people can find it sometimes difficult to. So what you're trying to do for a whole population is work out across the entire population, what are the best set of things? Like if I choose to say something very different, like diabetes, if you happen to have diabetes as a, as a patient, you go to your GP, you get your blood sugar measured. If there are complications, those complications are managed and so on. At a population level, the questions we ask are what are the factors that cause diabetes? How do we limit those? How can we pick it up at an earlier stage across the population? Do we screen? Do we do uh, other forms of early intervention? What kind of hospital services do we need? And we look at the totality of those and how they're performing to try to ensure that, if you like, the, the whole burden of diabetes for the entire population, say the population of the Midwest, we're looking at the best set of services to deal with that. Right. So, so the focus is different, but very analogous. And as you were providing advice to the government, and as I say, uh, appearing on so many people's radar yes. around the country, some of the things that came up, for example, Tony Holohan and the members of Neffet have a God complex. They are focused on power and they want power over us. Uh, of course, that wasn't our objective. Um, uh, and I would have said behind the scenes, and I was aware like, that there were things being said in the early days uh, about us in terms of, you know, having uh, great insights into, and there were murals being painted and all of these kinds of things. And I was counselling people to not get carried away with that because I felt that it was, it, we knew that this was going to go on for some time. And that, if you like, that worm would turn at some point. And we needed people to stay the course with us. We couldn't get carried away with that. And neither could we kind of get too concerned about the fact that at least in the eyes of some people we might be portrayed in those kinds of negative ways. We were really trying to do the best that we could. Our focus was really on maintaining clear communications with the objective of generating trust on the part of the public. All the evidence that we had, we had uh, opinion poll evidence that was running on a, on a, on a, on a twice weekly basis uh, for much of the pandemic was telling us that people did trust for the most part what they were hearing from us. And the reason that we wanted to do that was because if, if people trusted the information that they were getting, it gave them information and empowered them to make decisions in their own lives, to take the decisions that would help to ultimately protect them and their families. And that's the reason that we had such, I think, high levels of national solidarity and, in uh, the response. Something else that we heard on the show over the years um, of COVID was Tony Holohan wouldn't darken the corner of a pub. He hates pubs in the context of that debate. Well, one, and I tell this one is slightly tongue-in-cheek, but this is true. Uh, it was pointed out to me at one stage, there was a social media post by somebody who said, that man will never buy a pint in Ireland again. And within a few months, there was another one pointed out to me that said, that man will never get into a pub again in Ireland. So that kind of shows you, if you like, how, how, it, how it changed. I understand the frustrations that people had. We were all frustrated. And like, well, we had to maintain, obviously, our jobs uh, and the way that we did our jobs... Uh, behind the scenes, of course, no more than you or anybody else in society who's impacted and families were impacted and communities were impacted. We were frustrated. None of us wanted to be in a situation whereby our basic daily freedoms to, to go about our lives independently were, 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 were sacrificed in what ultimately was the collective interest of the whole country. And I come back to the collectivity because I think that was really important. What was really unique in this country, and I'd say it was unique because Europe was the epicentre of this infection for almost 
most of the two years, uh, the first two years of the pandemic. And when you look at all the data, the hard data that's been assembled and published by the Lancet and by the WHO, things like excess mortality, vaccination rates, hospitalisation rates in Ireland are among the best. That's not because of me and Neffet. It's because of the whole of the public getting behind the advice that we were giving, literally from the Taoiseach down to every corner and every community in the country. Do you believe ultimately that social media helped or hindered? Well, I think it's a complex question. I was involved in the swine flu pandemic, and just to remind you, uh, began in late, sorry, in April of 2009. Uh, and social media really wasn't a phenomenon. And that was a really big, I really noticed the difference between the two. So it was like another thing that we had to contend with uh, and to ensure that like, we were engaging with social media to both understand where the public was in terms of concerns and fears, but also as, as a mechanism uh, where many other people... And sometimes not always people who had, if you like, a national interest uh, in mind were either promulgating their own messages or seeking to try to undermine ours. And obviously that gave tools to people who who didn't share the kind of basic public health objective, who tried to undermine public confidence in things like vaccination and so on. Uh, And I'm happy to say in this country, the scale that that happened at was much, much lower than in other countries. Uh, The solidarity, again, I keep coming back to that point. It was a key word for us in the course of the whole of the pandemic was very, very high because that level of activity through social media compared to many other countries is not that high in Ireland, but we can't be complacent about it. You'll remember going on social media yourself at one point where I think you were dropping a family member into Dublin. And what you saw concerned you and I think you tweeted about it. Do you you think you did the right thing there? Well, I was trying to raise awareness of the concern that I had, we had, because we were seeing... we were seeing a lot of congregation happening and we were not in a situation as a country whereby we could afford that level of engagement uh, and opportunity, if you like, to create transmission and transmission circumstances. So we were struggling at this stage to get the messages out and so we were trying to find other means of, of engaging with and, and, you know, whether whether it was the right move or whether it was the wrong move, others will judge those kinds of things ultimately. I felt... It was a way of, and, and it did get the kind of attention. It did bring a focus on the gathering. We had a challenge in Dublin at that point in time, whereby many uh, streets in the centre of the Dublin centre of Dublin did see significant gathering. They were beginning to be covered in the media, and that led to an undermining of the public. So, if you're somebody at home, and you're you know cocooned or in some way limiting your own circumstances, to, you know, in the interests of not just yourself and your family, but of the wider community, and then you see this. It's very kind of undermining of your confidence. And, and I think it is important that people can see that there are, when, when necessary, measures taken to try to ensure that everybody stays the course. OK, we're chatting this morning uh, to Dr Tony Holohan. His memoir, We Need to Talk, the former Chief Medical Officer. We'll take a short break and talk some more after that. On Neffet and, and how you, you came together, you, one of the things we would have heard and other programmes like this would have heard over the time is, are they considering the mental health impact? Are they considering the impact on children of this? Or are they looking at it in an extremely straight-jacketed way? What was going on? Well, we tried to the best of our ability, I suppose a couple of things, to look at what the science and evidence was saying, first of all. But in the early days, it was limited. I mean, this is a new infection. Its impacts and its transmission and transmissibility and severity weren't very well understood right at the beginning. So that we had to stay very, very close to the updating of the, of the, of the evidence. The second then was to stay in step with the international advice. So that the World Health Organization at a global level, the European Centre for Disease Control, which is the European Union's uh, Centre for Disease Control based in Stockholm, they would have given guidance and advice. And it was important that we would stay the course with what was, you know, being being 
advised from those bodies. We would feed in our observations and our data into the ECDC and the WHO and that would be would form part of all of that. And we, we would have discussion about all of those things. So I have heard those kinds of suggestions made and it simply isn't the case that we would have, you know, blindly without any kind of concern for the potential impact. Uh, we know, for example, that there was an impact on on, on certain sections of society which is much greater than other parts of society younger people for example and where the risks if you like of the infection directly to you as a young person might be less than it would be to your parents or to your grandparents but that was the reason for the national solidarity I keep coming back to that like across the whole of society we've got everybody behind a national effort and the beneficiaries of the national effort uh, were people who were in the risk groups now of course there were people who died and we had significant mortality in this country but we know from the data that that excess mortality was much less than it was in most of the other European countries. The truth of the situation about COVID, I'd say two things about it. It is caused by a virus called, called SARS-CoV-2. And that's technically the cause. But really the cause of the burden of COVID impact on the population was inequality. It, was, it, it, it sought out people who were older, who had underlying medical illnesses, who were in vulnerable settings where they lived in overcrowded conditions because of socioeconomic reasons and so on. And all of those things pose questions for us for the future about how we prepare ourselves, not just in Ireland. That's, that was the pattern right across the world. Uh, and and uh, we, we have to find and ways of addressing those issues into the future. And what about Christmas 2020 then? And the decisions made, the advice that Neffet provided, the response of the government... And then people looking back at that period and saying it was a terrible mistake. However, at the time, a lot of people were saying we need to allow people to come together because this is a long haul this Christmas. Yes. Um, I mean, the government does intend to establish a review process. To, to look at and to come and we'll play an active part in that. I think that's the place where these kinds of issues do need to be worked out and will be worked out. Uh, I haven't in the course of writing this book, which is mostly a personal book about my own personal impact uh, and the personal impact of my family, of my wife's illness and death, to try to answer all of these kinds of questions. But I have offered my own uh, reflections on some of those kinds of issues. Yes, that was a difficult period of time for the country. Uh, we had choices to make. I think it was important, as you've rightly identified there, to find ways, particularly over the Christmas period, of just making things a little bit easier for families to come together. Because this, and and you won't need reminding, was the second Christmas that we were going through COVID. It was a really long, uh, drawn out, if you like, uh, impact on the entire population. Uh, But the pubs and the restaurants stayed open and that brought us to a level of socialisation which was equivalent to... We had means of measuring socialisation across the population, which is equivalent to the pre-pandemic levels. But I'll set all that against the fact that, and I, and I go back to what I said earlier on, while we have questions that we want to think about and to, to answer for the future and to better protect our population, just as every other country does, we know in this country that Ireland's performance, because of the solidarity of the whole of the population, was much, much better. And if you compare us to our, our nearest neighbours, the excess mortality rates in Ireland much, much, much lower than even in the north of Ireland, across the whole of the UK and most of Western Europe. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about your Limerick roots in just a moment. Yes. I see Ballybunion, for example, uh, features in photographs. It certainly in the book, does. And, and we'll get to that in a moment, Tony. But uh, one other thing that you do talk about in the book is the cervical check. 
controversy. Um, you're involved in that as chief medical officer. And uh, your book has led to responses from others, including, for example, Kian O'Carroll, who we know on the show, solicitor for the late Vicky Phelan. And you'll be aware, obviously, of Vicky's very strong uh, Limerick roots as well. Um, and he refers to the conclusion of the official review carried out by Dr. Gabriel Scally into the scandal. And Keno Carroll told the Irish Mail on Sunday, Dr. Scally said in his review that it is, in my view, entirely reprehensible to claim that in the past, cervical check was as good as any other cervical screening programme in the world. If you can't bring yourself to acknowledge past failings, why would anyone trust you today? And uh, he also said that your uh, comments in your book were self-serving. How do you respond to that? Well, obviously, I, I don't agree with those particular comments. I'm not going to get into a, a discussion across the media with, 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 with any particular individual. What I will say is the Gabriel Scali report, an excellent report. Gabriel Scali came into it because I brought him into it. I knew him. I recommended him to the minister. I knew him because he was a deputy chief medical officer in London, although he was originally from the north of Ireland. That's how he came to, to do the piece of work that he did. He did an excellent piece of work. He didn't just do the work, he, he stayed the course to oversee the implementation and there have been very significant improvements made to the programme as a consequence. A programme that began actually here in Limerick, it began as the Midwest Screening Programme and then expanded to a national programme, I should point that out. And uh, the, the, the uh, additional thing... Um, uh, I've slightly lost my train of thought there now what I was, what I, what I was Sorry, saying. Sorry, I was just talking about the reaction to what you had to say about it and that basically the essential point he was making was it was to do with failures rather than anything about oh, yes. the audit. You know, what I was going to say... Sorry, you know, was the programme wasn't yeah, good enough. Yeah. It's the essence of what he Apologies, was saying. But, but, but when, when, when you stand back and look at it, there was, alongside the, the Scully report, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists did a review of, if you like, the reading of the smears and found that from the technical, like what are called discordance rates, and that's the technical term that's used, they were in keeping with every other screening programme in the world. We were performing in terms of what results were coming through, as well as any programme in the world would be based on that type of technology, in other words, the pap smear. So the pap smear that re- results in a slide of cells looked at by a person down a microscope. It is... It's a good test, but it's not a perfect test. And that's known. You cannot pick up every individual case uh, and a certain number get through. And we were finding in this country, or at least, sorry, the RCOG, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, found that those rates in this country were no less than anywhere else in the world. So in that sense, the programme held up. And yet we find ourselves with a very high rate of litigation. Uh, there are significant numbers of cases lodged now in the future against the screening programme. And those two facts are, if you like, in conflict with each other. Right, uh, and, and the WHO has expressed concern as late as this year in a report about these, not only the viability risk for our own programmes of this kind of scale of litigation, but also okay. but, the, but the, the, the potential the reputational time, impact in, in, for individuals are, outside of are the country. Entitled to, Completely to, to entitled. Take Every individual is entitled to, and their, I wouldn't their, question yeah, that. Yeah. But I'm talking about the, the, the summation. Well, and, and, we have and such that's, large that's, numbers. That's the next question, which is relevant right now. What would you say to listeners about cervical check and other screening programmes at the moment? I would say that we have probably among the best screening programmes in the world right now. Cervical check is in a situation, I talked about the limitations of the pap smear uh, technology. We have changed that screening uh, technology now to HPV. 
So cervical cancer is caused by a, a virus called HPV or a group of viruses called human papillomavirus HPV. We now screen for that virus. It's a much more reliable test than the, than the pap smear. It's not based on a person looking down a microscope and making a judgment. It's a kind of yes or no answer. Much, much more reliable. We also have HPV immunisation. Anybody who's a parent of school going or young adult children will know this, that girls and boys are offered these uh, vaccines now. So it's the only cancer for which we have two modalities of prevention focused on it. One, to prevent you picking up the virus in the first place, and the second, to de- detect if you've picked up that virus uh, uh, at a later point. And those two different modalities of prevention offer the hope of us eliminating cervical cancer. There's no other cancer that can be said about it, and we're in a really strong position to do that. We have an excellent breast cancer screening programme, we have a colorectal cancer screening programme, we have a national screening committee which is overseeing all of this, established on foot of a recommendation by Gabriel Scali in his report and showing that the, the, the participation rates across the population in our screening programmes are among the best in the world. So the, the, our screening programmes have been, ex- and rightly, examined thoroughly and they are among the best in the world and women and men who are using those programmes can have full confidence in them. Okay. We're talking to Dr. Tony Tolhan. You um, may have ended up at the Graduate Medical School at the University of Limerick <laughs> if it was there at the time. It would time. have been very handy, Joe. Because it was only down the road. Because well, you, you have really strong Limerick roots. And tell me about them. Yeah, so, my, well, my mother is originally from Limerick, from near Capamore. Um, and uh, although I was born in Dublin, lived in Dublin until I was seven, uh, my dad was in the guards and was looking for a transfer back. My mother's parents were get, weren't getting any younger, looking for a transfer back to Limerick. And he eventually got transferred back to Edward Street Garda Station. You might recall it was a, it was a Garda Station back in those days. And we came back to Limerick and, and to Milford Grange. And I started school, moved to Mr. Clinton's class in first class in um, in uh, Moline National School and spent the remainder of my primary school education there through the, and those people who know that part of the world remember the new school. The new school became a reality for us when I was in sixth class, very exciting. And then I went to the Christian Brothers in Sexton Street. Uh, but over the course of my secondary school education, I, you know, I, I thought I might like to do medicine. That wasn't an option, you're right. And I'm sure my parents at the time would have loved if we had chosen. And as it happened, I was from a family of six uh, and all of us went to college we all went somewhere else other than Limerick, just by, by chance. Uh, and that must have been a big burden for my parents. I didn't think too much about that at the time, to be quite honest with you, what that meant for them. My dad was a guard, a sergeant. My mother worked. She ran a play school in her, when we lived in Milford Grange. We subsequently moved. We bought a site and, and built a house down closer to Anacotti. Um, and uh, um, so they made sacrifices in terms of their own or going things, I wasn't conscious of that, so that I could go to medical school outside of Limerick. But if there was a graduate medical school down the road in Limerick, it would have been very happy because we live very close to UL. Yeah. So do you have a passion for Limerick Hurling, for example? I, how could you not? I'm doing so well. And who'd bet against them for doing five? I'm sure nobody nobody around here. I see all the, the jerseys as I walk in here this morning. There's a huge amount of pride, civic pride in the city. I know it. I still have a sister living here in Raheen and her family, and they're all very passionate hurling supporters. Many of the team now, and you'll know this, uh, ha, have connections to the team of the 90s. And some of the team of the 90s were lads I was in school with, Gerald Hegarty and Declan Nash and, fellas like that um, and so yeah it's a wonderful tradition and how could we not be proud of them Now um, your late wife um, there is a photograph in the middle of your memoir and it's a tribute to her on the beach in Ballybunion so uh, explain that connection Yeah so this is a long standing connection of course being from Limerick I knew Ballybunion we visited there you know 
and people from Limerick tend to go to Kerry or to go to Clare and we were more in the Kerry direction just as it happens. But when I met Emer and became a member of her family, I discovered there had been a long-standing family tradition, although her dad was Dublin city manager. He went for the, he took the family for three weeks every summer to Ballybunion and they were part of the furniture down there. And I joined that. And when we got married and when we had kids, uh, they started to go to Ballybunion. It's become a long-standing Feely family tradition that the entire family, uh, three generations, would go for, for two to three weeks to, to Ballybunion and got to know the community, got to know the people, and obviously it's become a really important part of our lives and a very important part of our children's lives. My, my, my two children have spent every summer of their lives uh, visiting Ballybunion. Unfortunately, I've lost my father-in-law, my mother-in-law's too ill to attend, and obviously Emer has died, so that's impacted. But every summer you'll see a collection of the 20 of us taken by a good friend of mine, Ty Crowley, one day on the beach in Ballybunion. But that's what we did. We sat on the beach like so many people from Limerick in a circle, sometimes with coats on because of the rain, drinking tea and talking rubbish a lot of the time. <laughs> um, and um, Emer's funeral, I mean, you know, this was, as you well know, a big part of the discussion um, because it's so much part of Ireland and our culture and you know, being there for the funeral of a loved one or a friend. And so, I mean, you, you obviously at one level, you were professionally providing advice. On another, you were living with that. Yeah, and as I said earlier on, we weren't immune from the impact of any of that advice. And yes, the funeral that at the time that Emer died meant that we could only have 10 people. It meant that her three siblings, my two children, my parents, and Emer's dad, Frank, because her mother, Ita, was not well enough at the time, were the only ones who could participate in the service other than the priest. And it was in a large church at St. Pius X Church in Turner in Dublin where where my wife was christened, where I was married, uh, where Ronan, my son, was also christened and Emer had her communion and confirmation there. And so very much a part of our lives and in the community in which she grew up in and in which we, we were married and, and lived in. And uh, that was a very strange experience. But it led to some other wonderful things that I couldn't and wouldn't have anticipated. Um on the route from the funeral home to the church, we passed the school where my son went. He was in sixth year at the time in Turner College. And they were off school at the time because of COVID. All the boys in sixth year had lined out on both sides of the street in their full uniforms with the teachers as a, uh, um, uh, a mark of respect. Uh, and that was just incredibly impactful. Um, and we came around the corner to the church. Many of our neighbours relations, cousins and so on people that we didn't expect, friends we didn't expect necessarily to see, standing quietly, respectfully as we passed by and that, 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 that was wonderful. Yeah. So people found a way of, of connecting with us but to drive home from the, from the graveyard with just the three of us and not be able to have anybody into the house after, that was in a way that was the worst part for me. And there's so much in your story and so much in the book and we could only touch on it this morning. But one other question I had, you were on with Paddy Keelty on The Late Late yes. last Friday and Paddy's been a, a guest on this show as well. Um, did you think long and hard about talking about finding love again? And Kira, who you mentioned, yes. being in the audience... Because obviously it's it's important to you, but did you consider it, or, or how did you consider? It? Oh no, I did consider it, but but I knew like so. One of the things you might have heard me say this then on that particular show, Ema wrote letters for for me, and she spoke to me. Um, it was a difficult conversation, frankly. She spoke to me on a few occasions, but I didn't want to entertain too much of the conversation about me and life after Ema had died. 
But I discovered after she died, we opened the letters. She used to talk about the second drawer and she used to say to me continually, don't forget about the second drawer. She had letters for friends, her own family, but particularly for our children. And she left three letters for me written at different stages. And they're difficult letters to read. And in each of the three letters, but particularly the last one, she addressed the subject of me and future relationships and that possibility in finding happiness again. So in a way, I knew I had her blessing. But if I had any doubt about it, when I, I, I telephoned her sister to tell her about having met, and that's Emer's older sister now, Orla, who's uh, now president of University College Dublin. Um, uh, I said to Orla that I had met somebody and I, I wanted her to know that and to hear that from me. She said, you know, Emer spoke to me about this. I, did, I, didn't know, I didn't know that until that moment. And I just, you know, I could feel, if you like, the support and the love of Emer in, the, in those moments. Yeah. And I feel lucky and privileged that I had Emer and her love and support in my life, I, but I, to have found Kira. And, and when you said to Kira, uh, well, you're sitting in the audience at the Late Show, how, how, how did you react? Well, to was, that? We did have a conversation about it. We did have a conversation, but she knew it was important to me that like, I was trying to tell the story of my life up to, up to this point, and she now is part of my life, and I hope that I have found somebody who will be part of my life into the future. Uh, and I have she is very close to my two children which is great we talk about Emer every day it feels very very natural there's no sense at all in my life in which Emer is no longer a presence and I, as I said to my children all the way along we're not trying to get over the fact that Emer died we're trying to find a way of living without her and I think we've managed to do that and this is, this is a part of that and, and finally and briefly then how would you describe your place emotionally now would you describe yourself as happy content I, I would to be honest with you um, I've always been something of an optimist um, uh, just in my own natural kind of disposition uh, I'm not somebody who spends a lot of time kind of looking back and reflecting on you know oh I wish I wish you know I, th- I we make decisions whether they're in our personal or professional lives and we live with the consequences of those and we we try to you know accept that that's the way the way that life is we we spend our time thinking about the roads not taken sometimes it can inhibit us in, in moving forward as people or as professionals so I find myself in a lucky situation I've got two wonderful children they're both in university and doing well in life I'm very close to them they're very much a part of my life on a daily basis whether if if, if we're away from each other we talk every day I've always and Emer did instill this sense of the importance of communication with them. Uh, Kira is very much now part of that and part of she's got a wonderful family, I've got a wonderful close family and they're all very much part of our lives and I'm involved in things then in my my own local community as I've been for, for many years with whether that's GAA or whether that's music or whether it's cycling I have a great bunch of cycling friends, I'm just back from a cycling holiday with them in, 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 in France. So I'm doing things that I enjoy doing. Uh, obviously things have happened in my life that I wish didn't happen. Uh, but so many people find themselves in those experiences. Yes. The book is We Need to Talk, Dr. Tony Holland, a memoir uh, available in all good bookstores, as they say. And Tony Holland, uh, thank you very much for coming in. My and pleasure, Joe. This and, morning. and good to be in Limerick. Thank you. Your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nett on Live.